This is another iRaw podcast. And Alan and I used to have these very, very long discussions about how slave law didn't work because slaves were chattel property. So therefore they could. And I started thinking, well, wait a minute now. That's exactly what's going on with animals. So I started thinking about the issue and I sort of come to the conclusion that animals are chattel, chattel property. So animal welfare is never going to amount to anything. Animal welfare has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with economics. It has to do with making sure that animals are exploited in an economically efficient way. Welcome back to The Animal Turn, everyone. This is season six, where we're focusing in on animals and politics. And it's episode five. I'm always startled when I reach halfway through a season because it it always seems to go a lot faster than I anticipate. But we are halfway through the season, so welcome and congratulations on making it this far. And you're not going to be disappointed with who our guest is today. Today I'm speaking to Gary Francione. Oh, Francione, I apologize for whichever way it's supposed to go. Anyone who has been interested in animal rights or kind of questions about animal welfare and how they relate to things like abolition will have heard of Gary Francione. And he is an interesting scholar and he's very, very generous with his time. So I'm going to say up ahead that this is a long interview. It's one of the longest episodes I think we've done. But Gary really is just so generous with his his time and his details and his thoughts about veganism, abolition, as well as animal rights and why we should be thinking about this when we think about the interconnections between animals and politics. So Gary Francione is Board of Governors Distinguished Professor and the Kazenbach Scholar of Law and Philosophy at Rutgers University School of Law in New Jersey. He has been teaching animal rights theory and animal law for almost 40 years, and his work is focused on the property status of non-human animals, and he is critical of animal welfare reform and single-issue campaigns, both of which come up during the course of our conversation today. Gary maintains that we should abolish, not regulate, animal use, and that veganism is a moral imperative and a moral baseline. He rejects the idea that cognitive capacities beyond sentience are necessary for non-human personhood. He is the author of numerous books and articles on animal rights theory and animals in the law. And his most recent book, Why Veganism Matters, The Moral Value of Animals, was published by Columbia University Press in 2020. His 1995 book, Animals, Property and the Law, is considered one of the foundational texts of modern animal ethics. Eat Like You Care, an examination of the morality of eating animals, was co-authored with Anna E. Charlton and published in 2013. It has since been translated into 12 languages. In addition to his appointment at Rutgers University, he is the Visiting Professor of Philosophy at the University of Lincoln, Honorary Professor of Philosophy at the University of East Anglia, and I had a lot of fun talking to Gary. We, Even though it was a long interview, we still sat chatting for a fair bit after the interview was done. I really enjoyed speaking to him, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Hi, Gary. Welcome to the Animal Time Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, Claudia. I'm delighted to have you here. There are a few people I could think of as having on the show when trying to focus on and understanding the concept of abolition. And I have to admit, I've been quite confused. I'm relatively new to animal studies myself, and I find guests on the show will know that I sometimes find navigating, understanding what animal rights are and animal welfare and abolition complex and difficult to navigate sometimes. So I'm happy to have you on the show and hopefully to better learn about what abolition theory or ideas are, and why they're important politically. So 
I'm really, really excited to have you on the show. But before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? So I know you were just saying in the green room now that you've got five dogs. Where are you and what kind of work are you are you working on? Well, I used to live in New York City, in Greenwich Village, actually. And then uh, after we got our third dog, we were starting to have trouble with neighbors. And and so we moved out, and now we live west of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and we have five, almost six acres. We don't have to worry about neighbors disturbed about the dogs. And we now have five dogs. We've had seven, and we probably will go up to that number again. And uh, there's there there's really no such thing as too many dogs in my judgment, but but yeah, so we, you know, so we live, you know, we live in a, in a, I, w- I wouldn't say rural, it's a semi-rural area. I mean, if you go, if you, you know, if you go much further, it's just farmland. And how did you, how did you come to be interested in animals and animal studies? And you, you're one of the leading names when talking about animal rights. How did you come to be interested in this as a subject? In animal rights? Well, initially, I went to a slaughterhouse when I was in in law school and I, I it stopped me from me. I, I never thought, I have to tell you, I, I didn't grow up with any animals and it was not an issue I ever thought about. And I remember, you know, actually, I remember when I was in college, I was a, was a philosophy major and, and I went to the university of Rochester and, and, I remember a a friend of mine uh, who lived in Rochester had me over to his house for dinner and he was talking about how, you know, he he had a dog and he was talking about how he really thought it was, it was, you know, outrageous that people thought that dogs had less moral value than humans did. And I thought he was crazy. I mean, I thought, I remember, I remember him saying that. I remember, you know, and I remember saying to him, come on, you can't really seriously believe that. And so it's not really an idea I ever thought about. And to the extent that I ever did thought, think about it, I mean, you know, I mean, not that he was, he wasn't proposing it in some, some sort of philosophical, systematic. I mean, he was just basically, it was a comment he made. And I remember thinking, wow, what a strange thing to say. But a few years later, I went to a slaughterhouse and, and it, the violence of it was overwhelming. I've never seen anything like that before. And, and so I decided I couldn't participate. In, in in that. And, you know, because I thought of myself as a non, I thought of myself as into nonviolence. And I mean, I opposed Vietnam and, you know, whatnot. And so I, I, and I was into, I was, I was seriously thinking about nonviolence at, at, at the time. And, and so I, I thought, well, you know, I can't participate in this anymore. So I stopped eating all meat immediately. And and then, but again, it wasn't a philosophical thing. It was sort of an, it was a, an emotional reaction to seeing the violence of a, of a slaughterhouse that was slaughtering veal calves. Well, what, what were you doing there? What made you, what made you go there in the first place? Somebody who was into nonviolence, who was a vegetarian, suggested it to me. And I thought I probably should do that. I should probably, because I did, I, I mean, I loved meat. I did, I mean, I was a huge meat eater. And, and so I had this experience and, you know, veal calves can't walk when they're, you know, they're, 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 
their muscles are not developed and, and they're kicked in there. It was, it was a dreadful, it was dreadful. And so I stopped eating all meat immediately. I didn't phase it out. I didn't, I stopped. But again, I wasn't thinking about it philosophically. I mean, I, I was just, I had this experience and I said, I can't do this. And, and then I, I ate fish for like another year or so. And then I read some, I read something about how fish are sentient. And, and so I stopped eating fish. Then I had graduated from law school and I was then clerking in Washington, D.C. for actually the first woman on the United States Supreme Court, Sandra O'Connor. I was clerking for her and a dog got hit by the Supreme Court. And one of Justice Stevens's clerks called me and said, there's a dog outside. It's been hit by a car. I said, what the hell are you calling me for? <laughs> and he said, well, you're a vegetarian. I said, well, that's right. I don't eat dogs either. But, but you know, it was like, I was like sort of the, I was known as the animal guy in the court because I was simply because I was a vegetarian, right? And so, so I went out to the street and the dog was laying there and I picked the dog up and I brought the dog into the court with me and the dog was bleeding all over the place and, and the blood was going onto the rugs. I, my office was next to Justice Rehnquist's office and he came out and he yelled at me. I will never forget that. Came out and he yelled at me. And then my justice came out and, and, and defended me. It was sort of a cute it was it was it was dear and and i called the washington humane society because i i got this dog i'm sitting in my office with a dog in my lap that's bleeding all over i mean it had blood all over the place and and so i called the washington humane society and i said i got this dog this dog is dying can you send somebody and they sent somebody over they they sent uh one of their officers over and this woman came into my office and you know she had a uniform on. She looked like a police officer. I mean, she had a badge and that sort of stuff. And, and the dog had died before she got there. So I'm sitting there and I'm pretty upset. And, you know, we started talking and, you know, and, and I told her what happened and where I found the dog and whatnot. And then she said, she said, you know, she said, you really, you know, you're really upset. And I said, yeah, I am. And she said, well, you know, she said, have you ever thought about becoming a vegetarian? And I said, well, I am a vegetarian. And she said, for moral reasons. And I said, yes, I pointed to the ashtray that was quite full at the time. And I said, I said, it's not for health reasons. And, and, and she said, she said, well, that's interesting. She said, my boyfriend and I have just started a new group and it's called PETA. And this was Ingrid Newkirk. And she was then still working for the the Washington Humane Society, which is where she where she was before she w- went full time with PETA, and her boyfriend was a guy named Alex Pacheco, and Alex was a student, as I recall, he was a student at Alex was a student at George he was a student at George Washington at the time, and and I said, well, that's interesting. I don't know anything about animal rights, and and then I said, why don't you come over on Friday night? And let's talk about, I'd like to learn something about animal, you know, I don't know anything, anything about this stuff. And, and I said, you know, you, you can meet my partner. She's British. You're British. You could talk about, <laughs> talk about the old country or whatever. I know what that's like. Oh, you're South African. This person's South African. You know everything about each other. <laughs> exactly. exactly. You, know, you could talk about English villages. And, and so Ingrid and Alex came over that Friday night and we were living in Alexandria, Virginia, in a high rise, it was the only place we could find that would take 
we had a dog that we had we had, we had adopted in New Orleans. My first clerkship was for a judge in New Orleans, Louisiana, and and so we lived in this house. But but I, I mean, now the Supreme Court clerks make make a lot more money. I mean, they didn't. I mean, these were sort of almost honorific positions because they were so hard to get. They didn't have to pay you a lot of money. You know, and so they didn't. They didn't, and you know, because it, 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 these these really were. If you had a Supreme Court clerkship, it guaranteed you a top firm or a top yeah. academic job. You know, it, it was a great thing. And so we were having dinner, and and I had made a, or we had made a uh, some sort of rice dish, but it was not. It was it was vegan, but it was only coincidentally vegan. I mean, I was a vegan at the time. And, and so Ingrid got up at some point to go into the, our kitchen, little kitchen area. And, and she opened the refrigerator and she screamed from the, what is this cow pus doing in here? And I, I got up and I went over to the kitchen and she was at that time pouring the milk down the sink. And I said, why are you doing that? And she said, how you can't be serious and eat the you can't be serious about this issue and about nonviolence and eat this, consume this. And I said, why? They don't kill the cow for milk. And she like looked at me and she said, Are you clueless? And I said, Look, I said, I said, I've never even seen I I, I said, you know, I, I I've never even seen a cow, <laughs> you know, in, in, in real life. And I said, I don't know, you know, I didn't realize I, I have to tell you, I was 28 years old. I didn't realize that cows had to be pregnant like other mammals to give milk. I didn't know that. You know, I mean, I, I just thought they automatically, I, I, didn't, I really knew nothing. I knew nothing. You just don't give it any thought. I think I've, I felt the same way about a goose down jacket. I remember for a long, I try to say this to someone like the goose is in the name, but somehow when someone said like a goose down jacket, I was like, wait, like there's actually goose fit. Like I, it's some sort of disconnect where I just hadn't really thought it through. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, so she's pouring the milk down the, 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 which was bad enough. But then it got serious because you see, when I stopped eating meat, is one of the reasons why I tell people don't go vegetarian. I mean, I, there are lots of reasons to, 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 to vegetarianism is incoherent. But I mean, it's absolutely incoherent. And I said, well, you know, look, after I stopped eating meat, I ramped up on dairy, and I used to eat like zillions of eggs. I used to eat a lot of eggs. I, and I was, I was, you know, I, I wasn't, I was less health conscious back then. You know, when you're younger, you can, you know, you, you, you feel you're going to live forever. You can get away with all sorts of stuff. And so I used to eat a, a lot of ice cream. As a matter of fact, I lived on my, my, my primary food. I, I ate, I ate enormous, enormous. Amount. I had a much faster metabolism than I was a guy. I was a young person. And so I was able to do that and not weigh 4,000 pounds. And, but I mean, I, when I tell you I ate ice, I used to eat probably, I don't know, maybe six half gallons of Rocky Road a week. I mean, I used to eat tons of ice cream. And then when I wasn't eating ice cream, I was like eating potato chips. So, so this encounter challenged your ice cream consumption and got you interested in researching animals? Well, no, no. She starts taking the, the ice cream out and putting the ice cream down. And, and, and now I'm in, I'm in this moral, you know, I, my view is, you know, if somebody confronts you and you don't have a good answer, you don't fight. <laughs> and and so she's putting this down and she's telling me how this causes all of this suffering and death to cows. And 
as she's and I've got nothing to say because I'm assuming what she's saying is empirically correct. And if it is empirically correct, which I was assuming it was, it was horrifying. So what the hell am I supposed to say? No, it's my ice cream. And so we stayed up all that night. It was it was 41 years ago this month. It was October. I could probably find the exact. It was a Friday night in October. I think it was the second Friday. I think maybe in the third Friday, but it was the second. I think it was the second Friday night of October, of October 1980, 82. And, and she's, you know, she's doing this and we stay up all night talking. That was it. I never, ever knowingly ate another animal product as long as I lived. I haven't, I have not, I mean, it wasn't a transition. It was like, we stayed up all night talking. We saw the dawn in together. The four of us were sitting on the floor talking and that was it. I would, I had never even heard the word vegan. I had never heard, I I knew what a vegetarian, I'd heard, uh, you know, vegetarianism was a common word. Vegan, I had never heard the word vegan then. That's an amazing, that's an amazing, amazing story. I also went vegan in October. So maybe October is just a, maybe, 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 maybe October should be the vegan month, the birth of vegans. How did the, how did this then translate into your professional life? Like from, so from this first encounter where morally you started to think seriously about animals, how did this then translate and you started writing and thinking about them in terms of philosophy and law? Well, I immediately started thinking about it because I, I had, you know, I'd never really met anybody. I had not really met anybody who had, you know, I mean, who had a view about these things. And, you know, one of my professors in, in when I was, when I, w- I went to law school and graduate school at the same time, and one of my professors was Cora Diamond, a woman named Cora Diamond. And Cora was a vegetarian. And we, you know, we, we talked about, it. but I mean, again, it wasn't, I really wasn't sort of thinking about it in any sort of serious way. And then when I had the exchange with Ingrid and I became a vegan literally overnight in October of 1982, it changed my life because now I was aware of stuff. And, you know, I, I, at the time I couldn't have, I mean, I still had leather shoes. I couldn't afford to get rid of, I mean, we, we, when I tell you, we didn't have any money. I believe me, it was very, you know, it was very tight. And so I wore the leather shoes for a while until I had to replace them. And then I just bought other stuff. And then I stopped buying wool and all the other, all the other things. And then I finished my clerkship with the Supreme Court because obviously I couldn't do any work for them while I was working for the federal government. And then I, I went to work in a large firm in New York City. And, and the first animal case I did, I did for the ASPCA in New York. They got sued by some, by people who practice animal worship, you know, they, they animal sacrifice. They do animal sacrifice as part of their religion. And they got sued by these people who were seeking declare that this was protected by the First Amendment. And I did that case and I actually won that. I did it on appeal and I, I won that. And meanwhile, that, that during that time, I'm building my relationship with the people of PETA and I'm helping them with various, you know, they were very small at the time. I mean, when I tell you PETA was like, you know, a, a few dozen of us, if that. Um, it was a very small group. And then I took a job teaching at the University of Pennsylvania. And that's when all hell broke loose because it was in the Fall of 1984, I think it was October when that, that exploded as well, but it was the fall of 1984. Before I had started teaching at Penn, somebody had gone into the to a laboratory at the University of Penn and removed videotapes showing these monkeys having these really horrible head injuries inflicted on them at, at Penn. And the videotapes were stolen by some group that you know claimed to be the Animal Liberation Front. 
Anyway, and so they gave a copy of these videotapes to PETA and they gave a copy to me. And and so now I'm teaching at Penn and I'm watching these 40 hours of really hideous videotape. PETA made a, a 20 minute version of it, brought it to Philadelphia. Penn got very upset about this. And, you know, the interesting thing, Claudia, from a standpoint of the two of us being academic types, I I litig- I basically came out against my university and the following year represented a hundred people who did an illegal occupation of the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and the lab got closed down. And I still got tenure. And it just got if I was a woman or a black person or anybody else other than a white guy, I, I would have been thrown out of my on my ear from the University of Pennsylvania. But you know, I was I was a you know I was a standard, you know, sort of sort of standard issue, you know, guy who, you know, went to a good law school and did super well and was, you know, articles editor of his law review and clerked on, on, you know, for a federal court and then the Supreme Court. So, you know, basically I'd punched my ticket and I still got tenure. I got, I got early tenure. I was, I wrote a lot, but I mean, I got early tenure there, but, but it was during that time when, when I was doing the, the, the head injury clinical research lab was the name of the, the thing at the medical school at, at Penn. And I was, I, I was working on this case and it was really quite eye-opening to me because I was working with a lot of people in Washington, DC on Capitol Hill because it was funding issues. And I was working with a lot of academic types and various places who were giving me information and helping me to understand neurology. And, and, you know, cause I had to learn, I had, I had to ramp up fairly, fairly quickly. And it was, a, and then during that time, I got to be friendly with Tom Reagan. And that's how it really sort of started. Because again, when I was, you know, initially when I was teaching, I was teaching, you know, I was writing in the areas of intellectual property, constitutional law. I wasn't, I really wasn't, you know, sort of, I was sort of more reacting as a lawyer, helping out activists who were doing things. So I was helping out the ASPCA who got sued by people who did animal sacrifice. And I was representing PETA that was being basically hounded by just about every federal agency. And, and I was, you know, I was, I was doing, I was a lawyer, I was a law professor doing law stuff. And, and I wasn't in my scholarship was sort of straight legal scholarship. I was doing sort of law and science regulation. I was doing intellectual property, that sort of stuff. I did a big article on copyright infringement. And then I met Reagan. And Reagan and I started getting very close. And we're doing a lot of talking. And and what was interesting was that Tom was trying to sort of figure out what animal rights meant in a practical way. How do you turn animal rights into a into a into a a, a, a an activist theory. What do active, because you have to remember historically up to that point, it had been animal welfare. So maybe, maybe we can turn now before we get into, to animal welfare. So what I really love about your origin story here, and I think it's been a common thing for many guests is how their personal lives and their academic lives have melded together. How people who have a commitment to animals have found academia and the, the connections that you can make there they've almost inserted animals, whether it's from sociology to geography to philosophy to law, kind of brought in oftentimes personal commitments to animals into the academic space. But now that you've brought up Tom Reagan and animal rights, we're going to start talking about animal welfare, which is great. 
Could you tell me in kind of a succinct way, what is animal welfare and how is it different to abolition? Well, actually, let's talk about animal welfare, animal rights, and then abolition, because I think that's the best way to do it. Animal welfare, which was the dominant theory, which is which was the dominant theory starting in the 19th century, at least in the West. We're talking about the West now. I mean, I don't, I can't, can't speak to sort of other 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 systems, but Western in Western thinking, animals are considered things up until basically the you know the 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 19th century. They have no moral. I mean, there were some obvious exceptions, but as a, as a social matter, animals are just regarded as as their their property, their things, we have no moral obligations that we owe directly to them, etc. This changes at the end of the 18th, but mostly in the 19th century, with people like Jeremy Bentham, who say, "Well, you know, animals can suffer, so they matter," and etc. But because Bentham believed Bentham Bentham rejected the idea that animals didn't matter because they weren't rational, they couldn't communicate, etc. But he rejected that, but he thought that that their cognitive inferiority was relevant to continuing to exploit them. So in other words, Bentham Bentham thought you could have what I call, he didn't call them this, he, he, you could have quasi-persons. In other words, you could have humans who were persons. They had a morally significant interest in continuing to live. And then you had things that had no interest, no morally significant interest at all. And then Bentham sort of plops animals in the middle of that. And he says, well... Animals don't have the interest that humans have because they don't have a morally significant interest in continuing to live because they're cognitively inferior to us. On the other hand, they're unlike chairs and tables because they're sentient. They can feel pain, etc. They're subjectively aware. So he thought it was all right for us to keep on using them as long as we treated them in a, quote, humane way or, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, as, as long as we mitigated their suffering, then it was all right for us to continue to use and kill them. And that's animal welfare. That was that's 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 that that is the theory, which, in in terms of the history of ideas, I think it's sort of unique in that you enter the 19th century with nobody thinking animals matter at all. You leave the 19th century with basically a paradigm shift of people thinking animals matter, but it's still all right for us to continue to exploit them. All right, so animal welfare is the theory that sort of you know, it, 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 it continues on the 19th century into the 20th century. And then in the sort of the middle of the 20th century, people start thinking, well, you know, we're talking about women's rights and, you know, and, and, and civil rights and, and whatnot. And in the, in the 60s in Britain, and it, did, it came here, here later, but, but in the 60s in Britain, you had a lot of people starting to say, well, what, how about animals? What about animals? And Singer comes along in 76, 75, 76, and writes Animal Liberation, which is basically Bentham on steroids. I mean, I mean, Peter's, Peter's views never really have been all that different from Bentham's in that Peter thinks that animals are intellectually, cognitively inferior to us. And, and that if they don't have a sense of the future, if they're not connected to a future self, it's all right for us to, or at least he thinks it may be justifiable. He, he sort of cushions it. So it may be justifiable for us to continue to, to kill, you know, to, 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 you know, use them to kill them because they don't have a morally significant interest in their lives. And, and, you know, and then he's got all of this balancing with, you know, he, he has, he has all of his utilitarian balancing because he doesn't believe in rights. Singer thinks that, that if an animal is self-aware, 
that animal may have an interest in continuing to live and may have sort of a presumption against being killed and used the, the same way that we as humans have presumptions. We don't have rights because he's, he's a utilitarian. We don't have rights, but he's sort of like a rule utilitarian. He thinks that there are presumptions in, uh, against using at least normal humans, typically functioning humans as, as, as resources for other humans, exclusively the resources for other humans. But Singer, Singer didn't think that most animals, particularly when he first started, didn't think that most animals had any sort of sense of the future. He, he sort of shifted and then he started thinking that great apes, you know, were perhaps had a, were, were more like human persons. And now he's, you know, he's expanded that a little bit more with elephants and marine mammals and whatnot, but he's still sort of, you know, not, not clear about all the animals that we eat. Do they have a sense of the future and, you know, and, and what whatnot. But even if animals have a sense of the future for Singer, that doesn't preclude us exploiting them because he's a utilitarian. So there can be consequences. You know, the, the consequences can weigh, can, can weigh such as to militate in favor of using uh, an animal, even if the animal has a sense of the future, even if the animal is a is a person, i.e., has a morally significant interest in life, that animal still doesn't have, you know, d- doesn't doesn't sort of have a right to not be killed and used. Singer or Reagan comes along and says, "No, I don't. I don't accept that." And I'm a I'm a deontologist and I'm a rights theorist, and I think that if if a if an animal is a subject of a life, by which he means not only sentient, but has a psychophysical sense of identity through time, then that that being is the subject of a life and it doesn't matter whether the, the, the being is a human or non-human, then that that being enjoys a right of respectful treatment that prohibits you from using that being exclusively as a means to an end. And and that's sort of where I came in. You know, I mean Tom's written his book and you know and and I, I met Singer, but I didn't know I didn't know Singer well. I knew Tom and I were became very close friends. And at the time, I was much more interested, understand at this point in time, I was much more interested in practical things. I wanted to change the world and I wasn't really the theoretical stuff interested me, but only insofar as it informed how I figured out how we how we did things practically. At the time, the animal groups are identifying as animal rights groups, and they're sort of saying we're different from the Humane Society of the United States or from the Animal Welfare Institute or from these other, you know, conventional organizations. And we are, you know, we're animal rights people. And I would say, well, what the hell does this mean? You know, what? How, how is your activism different from the activism of the Humane Society or of the ASPCA? And the answer is it really wasn't all that different. You know, they were they were doing... When PETA started, PETA was focused on primarily on vivisection. But as time went on, you got more of these groups. People are thinking, well, what are our campaign? What, what do animal rights campaigns look like? And nobody knew the answer to that. And so Tom and I are trying to figure out what a campaign, what do animal rights campaigns look like, and how do they differ from animal welfare campaigns? And at about the same time, I'm starting to now do research into animal welfare law. And the professor who was next to me at the University of Pennsylvania, his office was next to me. It was a guy named Alan Watson. He's passed away now. He was a wonderful guy. And Alan was an expert in slavery. And Alan and I used to have these very, very long discussions about how slave law didn't work because slaves were chattel property. So therefore they could. And I started thinking, well, wait a minute now. That's exactly what's going on with animals. 
So I start thinking about the issue and I sort of come to the conclusion that animals are chattel, chattel property. So animal welfare is never going to amount to anything. Animal welfare has nothing to do with morality. It has to do with economics. It has to do with making sure that animals are exploited in an economically efficient way, which is the subject of my first book, Animals, Property, and Law, which I wrote in the mid-90s. And, and so now it's becoming clear to me animal welfare isn't going to work. And I was having existential experiences. I was thinking about one the other day when I was involved in, with a bunch of other lawyers and we were trying to sort of argue that that cows that were being used, that were being uh, identified for some dairy buyout program from the federal government in the United States, that they should be branded. The government was requiring that they be branded on their foreheads. And everyone said, oh, this is really horrible. And, and so, you know, and there was, so we're arguing with the judge that they should be branded on their hind quarters or they should be whatever. And I was sitting there in that, in that experience. And I was thinking, what am I doing? I'm, I'm having an argument about where we're going to brand a cow. You know, this is not animal rights. This has got nothing to do with animal rights. This is like, you know, this is terrible. So as far as I've understood animal welfare, and I think the reason I get kind of tripped up on animal welfare sometimes, so, so, and we will get to abolition soon, but so you've got animal welfare and animal rights, and I just want to make sure that I'm with you so far. And as far as I've understood animal welfare, animal welfare is often kind of intervening on to make a situation better, whatever it is, a cage bigger or a breeding practice more efficient. And last week I was at a, a veterinary ethics conference, which was quite interesting because a lot of vets are speaking about animal welfare, right? And I was holding in my mind this idea of animal welfare that I that I've got kind of informed from, from, I guess, my vegan background. I'm definitely a critical animal study scholar. But I, I got the sense that they spoke about animal welfare in a slightly different way, where welfare was actually like the health of an animal. And I wonder if this isn't also where sometimes there's some trip-ups where people get confused with animal welfare. Like, is there is there a space in a situation where animal welfare is also just looking after an animal? Like, is, is Are all welfare programs problematic? If you look at a welfare program with humans, are these problematic programs? I'm just trying to get a sense of, are there trip-ups here in terms of the lingo and language with animal welfare where people get confused? Well, yeah. I mean, when you're talking about human welfare, you're talking about the welfare of persons. When you're talking about animal welfare, you're not talking about persons. You're talking about things. Remember something. Animals are chattel property. They are things. You love your dog. You love, what's your dog's name? Linus? Is his name Linus? You love Linus. You value Linus. The thing is, Linus is your property. You know, I mean, you you know, I love my dogs too. And if I decided today that they were a pain in the ass, I could take them to the veterinarian and say, kill them. I don't want them anymore. Or I could take them to a kill shelter and I could dump them because they are my property. I value I, part of the incidence of being a property owner is you get to you get to value the, the your your property. I mean, if I have a car that I like, I can take really good care of it, and I can wash and wax it every week, and I could change the oil every five minutes or whatever, or I can you know just let it go as long as it gets through the. the they're almost like maintenance laws to some extent. They help to maintain the they help to maintain the status quo to some extent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I what I argued in animals, property, and the laws that was because animals are property. You're generally the the level of protection you're going to accord them will generally be linked to what what level of of care is required to uh, exploit them in, in an efficient way. For example, you know we have laws. You know, we have a law in the United States, which in mo- many other countries have similar law. Where you know the animal has to be rendered uh, unconscious before the animal's shackled, hoisted, and cut, unless it's kashrut or halal. 
And the reason why you have those laws is because if you've got a, a large animal hanging upside down, conscious, fully conscious, the animal moves around a lot, is, is panicked, and then the animal incurs carcass damage, and that has an economic economic devaluation of the meat. And it hits workers, and you have worker injuries. So it's much more efficient to stun the animal. And and you know what's interesting is I've been in a number of slaughterhouses in my life, and frequently animals are not completely unconscious during the slaughtering process. They're just unconscious. They're, they're stunned enough so that they're not moving around a lot because that's what, that's what efficiency requires. Efficiency doesn't require that they be completely unconscious. Efficiency requires that they not move around so that they don't incur carcass damage or cause worker injuries. And, and so what I, what I, my position is, is that animal welfare really doesn't have anything to do with morality, it has to do with economics. It has to do with how a rational property owner who had full information would behave, you know, without the law. In, in other words, animal welfare is a set of rules that a rational property owner would employ if there were no laws, but the property owner was completely rational and had full information. And see, so what, what, what's happened now is, you know, you had factory farming came into existence in the mid 50s, 1950s. And, and, you know, people start saying, well, you know, look, you can take 10 animals and you can make, you know, this amount of profit. If we can put a hundred animals in the same space and make 10 times more profit. Nobody ever sort of figured out that, that this would cause stress and that the stress would cause, would cause illness, disease, animal loss, et cetera. So now we're tinkering around with factory farming, but again, it's, 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 this is all a matter of efficiency because animals are chattel property. Animal welfare can't work. It's, it's not a question of whether it, does. it can't work in the same way slave law couldn't work. You had lots of laws that protected, supposedly protected human slaves. They didn't work. Why? Because you have slavery. Slave owner, slave. There's a conflict between the slave and the slave owner. If the slave owner doesn't win, you don't have slavery anymore. So the institutional status requires that the status, that the, that the interests of the slave owner be protected. Similarly, you have animal, animal owner. You have a conflict. If the animal owner doesn't win, then you don't have a system of animal exploitation anymore. And so, you know, and, and so I, I, I made uh, fairly early on, I decided animal welfare was, you know, was just nonsense. It just, it was not, it was complete nonsense. And then the question became, all right, well, so what do we do as an, as, you know, what does animal rights mean? How do we turn, how do we translate animal rights into an activist program? And so what Reagan and I, and and my partner Anna, because she was actively involved at that time with this, was how do we turn this into you know a, a, an activist program? And what we started focusing on was rejection of welfare reform, rejection of single issue campaigns because you know things like going after fur or going at you know those sorts of campaigns were problematic for all sorts of reasons because you know it's sort of for, for example the anti fur campaign in addition to being vilely sexist was, was, you know, what's the difference between fur and wool? There is no, there's, I mean, you know, there's no, no, no distinction. What's the difference between fur and leather and, and, you know, and leather. And you, so you had all these peculiar things where I remember being part of, 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 you know, being a lawyer who was representing activists at demonstrations, anti-fur demonstrations, and the activists show up wearing wool and leather, you know, and they're busy calling every woman who walks by really vulgar names. So Tom and I basically decided that single issue campaigns, bad idea, welfare, Reform is a really bad idea, and that we really be ought to be focusing on veganism because that was really sort of the crux of the of the thing. Th- that basically, as long as people are consuming them, as long as they're eating them, you know, I mean, I mean, veganism is, involves not just not eating them, but not eat, wearing them or using them. But eating is the main thing. 
If you can't, once you convince somebody that morally you can't justify eating them, then everything falls into place until you convince them that eating them is a problem. Nothing falls into place. So, so eating is the primary thing. And so we decided that we were going to focus on veganism. We were going to reject the single issue campaigns. We were going to reject welfare campaigns. And we were also going to promote human rights because, you know, there was something really wrong with this, you know, very early on, late, towards the end of the 1980s, Peter and I, well, we, we parted ways, you know, seriously. But one of the early reasons why we fight, had, had arguments over the I'd rather go naked than wear fur campaign, which started in the late 1980s. And I was at the meeting at which this was announced. And I, I, I said, this is really dumb. I can't believe that you're proposing this. The idea that we're going to we're going to propose that people ought to think more critically about animals by having women walk around, you know, who have lettuce leaves taped on their breasts, handing out veggie dogs. I mean, that is just to just to recite it is to hear absurdity. So, you know, and, and interestingly, I must say at the time, this was 1989, I went to Feminists for Animal Rights and I said, we've got we've got to have a united front against this. We cannot, you know, we cannot, you know, I love my friends in PETA, but they're wrong about this. And we've got to take a position against this. And Carol Adams and Feminist for Animal Rights would not do so because Ingrid was a woman and she was running PETA. And, and so they didn't want to take a position against her. I thought that was, that was my first exposure to the nonsense of identity politics. It, it was, it was, I thought it was horrible. I thought, I thought Carol was wrong with it. And, and it took them another five years. It took feminist for animal rights another five years before they said anything about it publicly. I wonder if the, the difference between, you mentioned someone showing up there with wool while defending kind of foxes and fur. You, before we started the show, you spoke a little bit about domestication. And I wonder if that domestication isn't part of this story here, how people can, you know, find it defensible to wear wool while at the same time, fighting for fur to to be taken out of markets or off markets do you think domestication is part of the the picture here why why what because we domesticate the animals that we use for wool well yeah so it seems to me that someone who would show up at a protest to fight against the wearing of fur and this person is wearing wool would have somehow created a hierarchy in their mind that wild animals are somehow more important than the sheep from whom the wool comes What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Maybe. I mean, I, I, it's interesting that you suggest that. I always thought it had to do with sexism. I always thought it had, because I always thought the, the anti-fur campaign was vilely sexist. And, and, you know, and that, and that it, was, it was an easy target because women wore fur. Men didn't wear fur, particularly back then. You know, there was, you know, I mean, it was, it was exclusively a, a woman's article of clothing. 
But look, a lot of you're right. I mean, it, it, it is correct to say that a lot of the people who were at those demonstrations weren't vegans. So, I mean, obviously they had some sort of hierarchy and, and, and whatnot. And, and indeed, at the time when I first got involved, a lot of the, quote, leaders of the movement, they're still not, but they a lot of them were not. There were very few that were vegans. I mean, there were some vegetarians. But, but you know, these people were not, you know, it, it was really sort of a, it was a, it, it didn't take me long to sort of figure out there's something really wrong here. I mean, yeah, it's like these people are like, it's like, you know, they have all these anti-fruit demonstrations and then they go and they, you know, they, they, I will never forget, I'm, not to name names, I, I will not, but I remember there was this one person I dealt with and this person was the head of a large animal organization that focused on a particular issue. And I remember going out to dinner with her and her husband and they were like, <laughs> They were asking the waiter for butter and stuff like that. I mean, you know, it was, it, you know, it, there was really very little. And, and, you know, the first time I had, there was a, there was a, someone in the United States who headed up a group called Fund for Animals. And his name was Cleveland Amory. And the first time I went out to dinner with him in Manhattan, we went to this Italian restaurant on 57th Street. And this was the, this was sort of the great, he was the granddad. I mean, he was, he was the as far as as far as groups are concerned, Cleveland was like the the, the a, a leading person in terms of you know Cleveland Amory was one of the original people, and you know he had started Fun for Animals. It was a big anti hunting group and whatnot. I went out to dinner with him for the first time. I was you know I thought you know he was like a celebrity. You know he was a celebrity to me, and I was really excited to meet him. We went out to this Italian restaurant on Fifty Seventh Street, and he ordered chicken, and it blew my mind. And it was then I sort of just, you know, this all sort of came together and I thought, you know, this is just a mess. These people, <laughs> this is just a mess. And so this sort of got me to sort of be thinking about the vegan thing. How How is this veganism kind of central? Because I know veganism is really important to your idea of abolition. So we've spoken a little bit about animal welfare and I think we've briefly touched on, on animal rights. But how is what is abolition? In a, so you mentioned there that abolition has to do with, you know, it was to do with slavery, to do with ending slavery, and slavery should not be allowed. What is abolition when we think about it with regards to animals? What 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 do you mean? Well, I could only go so far with Reagan because Tom believed in rights, and so he thought that if if a being was a subject of a life, that that is had a psychophysical sense of identity over time, then you couldn't, you had, you could not use that animal. You couldn't, you, you know, that, that animal had a right to life in the same way that a human had a right to life. The problem is both Singer and Tom, both Peter and Tom saw personhood, non-human personhood as linked to cognitive capacities beyond sentience. And I just, I thought that was nonsense. I thought that was wrong. I thought that was wrong because for lots of reasons. What difference does it make? If an animal is sentient, then that animal does have a connection with the future self, the self in the next second. In other words, even if the animal is not cognitively sophisticated, even if the animal can't think about what the animal is going to do on the animal's sabbatical next year, the animal still has a sense of connection to the next second of consciousness. And that's, in, as far as I'm concerned, anything else is arbitrary. Anything else requires you to draw, draw completely arbitrary lines. 
And so, but neither, Peter certainly wasn't going to go there and Tom wasn't going to go there. And Tom still had a very sort of hierarchical notion, like in the case for animal rights, Tom, Tom says, well, if you're on a lifeboat with a bunch of, you know, with, with a bunch of dogs, you're under, and, and it's a question about whether or not you're going to, you're going to throw the human overboard or the dog overboard. You're obligated to throw the dog overboard because, because humans have greater opportunities for satisfaction than dogs do. And, and indeed, if there are a million dogs, if it's a question of one human versus a million dogs, you have to throw the million dogs over, 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 overboard because death is a greater harm for the one human than it is for any of the dogs. That was Tom's view. Now, I think that was wrong. As a matter of fact, I wrote an article about that, uh, that put some strain in our relationship. One thing you learn about animal people is they don't deal well with disagreement. And, and so I wrote this article in a, phil- a philosophy journal about saying that, I I thought that the idea that animals, that humans, humans had greater opportunities for satisfaction based on species was problematic for Tom's theory. And, and I wanted to shift it over to sentience. So that's, you know, the, by the mid nineties, things are heating up politically very much in the, in, in the States in that the large animal groups, there was a period of time in the early early to mid 90s where Tom and I were going around and talking to all these groups and sort of trying to get them to sort of get on board with vegan ad- advocacy and getting rid of the welfare campaigns and getting rid of the single issue campaigns and blah 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 and it was we were getting a really great reaction and i think that what happened was i, I you know another another thing i didn't really quite call correctly was I didn't realize how much of a business I knew it was a business but I didn't realize how much of a business it was and I I didn't realize that people were going to get really upset about this because I was you know we, we were messing with their business model that basically animal well animal groups animal advocacy groups function by keeping the donor base as broad as possible and so you keep the donor base as broad as possible by basically not taking any positions that anybody disagrees with. You know, it's like, oh, Claudia, you, you know, you're a vegan. Great. We love you. You know, give us money. You know, oh, Joe, you're not a vegan. That's fine. You know, just give us money. You know, and so it was like it, it, you have to keep the donor base very, very broad. And I didn't realize how the how people were going to respond. And they got it got really ugly. It got really by by the mid 90s. It got very, very ugly. And I wrote when Tom died, I wrote an, an essay which I, 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 there was a, an, an in memoriam issue of Between the Species. I think that's what it's called, Between the Species. It's sort of, a, it's a philosophy journal for animal, on animal topics. And they did a special issue about Tom and I had the lead article. And I talked about how the movement fell apart in the 1990s. And, and anyone who's interested in the history of the movement really ought to read that article because I documented. I mean, I, 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 it, it's fairly clear what happened. There was a large, large, there was a serious reaction on the part of these large animal groups. And is that because you were proposing no use, that the only way to move forward? So like animal, animal welfare is still kind of saying we can use animals. We just have to make the use a little bit more pleasant in our mind, whereas abolition is saying, no, no use. We can't, we can't condone any use. This just, like you said, disrupted kind of the campaigning and the ideas that people were already working on. Right. And, and, and think about it this way. The animal groups were sort of happily functioning with Peter Singer as their business model, as their, as their, as their business model. Peter Singer's view was anything that reduces suffering is a good idea. So like, you know, 
anything can be described as reducing suffering. So any nonsense campaign can be described as reducing suffering. So these people were able, I mean, this was, this was a, this was a business model that couldn't fail. I mean, it was basically, you could, you could endlessly generate welfareist campaigns, which is what they were doing. And so we come along and we start saying, that's all bullshit. It's got to stop. You know, single issue campaigns are problematic. You know, they're, they're, you know, welfare campaigns are problematic. Single issue campaigns are problematic. We ought to be proposing veganism. We ought to be very clear about human rights. We ought not to be promoting sexism, racism, other forms of discrimination. We ought to be clear about this, that we are a, we're the peace movement. We're just including animals. And people were not going to have any, and, and it, 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 it hit when Tom and I did the when we did the Tom and Gary show. We would get we would get a hell of a reaction from people. You know, we really would get you know we would we would we would get a, an enor- an incredible reaction from people. And I think the, the 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 people who ran these groups saw that. And then it came to a crunch. There was a I discussed it in this article. There was a particular event that happened. Tom and I took a took a, a negative view of it and made a public statement. And there was a lot of pressure and Tom capitulated. Tom, Tom decided to, that he was going to, he was going to, it was that he and I were going to part and that he was going to, you know, go the way of saying that, you know, well, it's a broad church and we can include everybody. My view is no, you can't do that. Well, this, yeah. So this was going to be my next question and it's, it's come up several times in this season and in the podcast in general a couple of times that if we're moving towards a future, a nonviolent future, a future in which the relationships between humans and animals are not what they are today, that that are that are violent and that re- involve respect of animals, that the steps towards that future involve numerous strategies and that abolitionists and abolition ideas of non-use are just one of many ideas and that we need all of these interventions. We need people that are in policymakers that are busy pushing for small-time reforms and we need we need people like yourself who are saying, no, no use, we shouldn't use anything. And all of these voices create, I guess, a new norm and a new idea that that makes it more palatable, to use, I think, a, a good word here, to more palatable the idea that animals should not be used. So, so that changes the norm, it changes the kind of psyche o- over time. No. On the contrary, I think to the extent that you've got people out there saying you can still use them, then all that does is completely marginalize the people who are saying no use. You see, the paradigm is the, the and the, it's the dominant paradigm. You can't even say that these are like competing voices because they're not competing voices. Those of us who are promoting abolition, we generally tend to not not be. We're not we're not part of. I'm not part. Of, I don't I don't run a group. You know, I'm an an, an individual academic. And and I, I do what I do. And most of the people who do this are doing it sort of on a grassroots level. The large groups are all singing from the same hymn sheet. And that is ba- once you say to people that the issue is treatment, if you've got two paradigms, the issue is treatment, the issue is use. For me, the issue is use. How do you justify use? For them, the issue is treatment. How do we make treatment more humane? That is going to completely drown out the use paradigm, which it does. I mean, it does. And it's intended to. I mean, I mean, that's the thing. If you tell people, well, you know, look, 
there's a thousand voices. You know, you got the people out there who say you shouldn't have slaves at all, but you got all these voices who say whip your slaves, you know, more gently or less frequently or, or you know, or, or be a more humane slave owner. Those people are going to be, people are going to be much more attracted to those people because they want to continue to own slaves. So if, you know, it, this is something that requires sort of a paradigm shift in, in the individual's head. And I don't think, frankly, you're going to do this with policy. I don't think you're going to do it with law. We are talking about an industry that is responsible for billions and billions and billions of dollars. You know, I mean, th- th- this is a mega industry. And until you shift the paradigm and get and get a critical mass of people who say, no, use can't be justified, nothing's ever going to change. And, you know, I would say this. I've been doing this for 40 years of my life. More animals are being used now in more horrific ways than then. More animals are being, we've had animal welfare for 200 plus years, and and we were exploiting more animals now in more horrific ways than at any point in human history. It doesn't work, Claudia. It just doesn't work. And and so, you know, I understand that, you know, it's uh, the million voices and blah, 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 blah. And it sounds good. That sounds good. You know, let's have diversity because we all, you know, we all, it's our fetish word these days, diversity. So let's have diversity. And the answer is sometimes diversity is a really bad idea. Do you think it sometimes got to do with, you know, I guess the fact that people, and you'll know this, haven't been you know, a vegan yourself, you you have to navigate the social world yourself, right? So you'll have tons of people kind of confess to you the ways in which they engage with the animals that you really don't agree with. But because you are, I guess, a social being and you don't want to necessarily be completely ostracized yourself you in, the, in your workplace, amongst your family, that you maybe, you know, you maybe give concessions when it's not really what you think, but you give concessions and conversations and stuff because you're also a human and you're a person who doesn't want to be alone, I guess. Neville Chamberlain gave concessions and look what happened with him. I mean, I mean, no, I don't. I, concessions is a word I'm not particularly fond of. I mean, I, 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 I'm always polite to people, or at least I try to be. But I don't, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I've never felt the need to change my views or change... You know, like, like if you invite me for dinner and you're not a vegan, I will go to your house because anybody who invites me for dinner knows who I am and is basically knows that we're going to get into this discussion. And my view is, is I take any opportunity, any opportunity to talk to people whenever I can. So I will go to, you know, I'll go to parties where they're serving animal products and then I'll end up having a conversation with people and, and sometimes some of those people might be offended by some of the things I say, but you know. So how, how do we get to this? How do we get to realize an abolition dream, this, this future? What, what, is the, what are the steps? If welfare is not the steps towards it, what are the steps? It's easy. It, it's, if we, you know, I remember in 1984, 85, I hadn't been involved in this long, but it was clear to me already that we needed to have, we needed to push towards veganism. At a time when many of the animal rights people, not the animal welfare people, the animal rights people were not vegan. Okay. They were vegetarian, maybe, whatever, whatever that means. But and I remember we had this big meeting in Washington, and the, the issue was whether or not we were going to support this particular animal welfare legislation, which I thought was a disaster. And it turned out to be a disaster. 
And I remember, you know, we were sitting in this room and when they came to me and asked my views, I said, um, I said, I think this is a waste of time. I, and I don't think that there's a waste of time. I think it's kind of productive. And I think this is going to make activism more difficult, which it did. And I said, but I said, I think we got to stop all this bullshit. We're never going to change this with the law. Not, not, not now. You know, we can't. And what we ought to do is spend every minute of time and every second of, you know, every ounce of labor, every, every cent of money, we ought to be focused on educating people about veganism. And I remember somebody said, oh, well, you know, that's typical from you, you know, coming from you and your ivory tower, blah, 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 blah. And I said, no, no, I said, I'm the most practical guy in this room. And I said, the bottom line is, we are never going to change anything as long as people are eating them. That's never, I mean, as long as people think animals are things to eat, nothing is ever going to change. All we're going to be doing is sitting around having, you know, mental masturbation fests about how we make it better. And it's and 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 that's never going to work because they're they're economic commodities. So like the there there are limits on what we can do. And so the bottom line is, we need to make a vegan world. And the way you know and and you know Claudia, I spend my time doing. It. I mean I don't. I mean, you know I mean there, I can't go any higher academically. So it's not that I'm waiting. I'm not waiting for a promotion. You know, and at Rutgers, the highest level is a board of governors professor. I am a board of governors professor. So I'm not doing this for my career. I do this every day because it works. And what I find is, you know, I just wrote a piece and I got a tremendous response from it. A piece that I did for Cambridge, the Royal Institute of Philosophy in Cambridge University. They have a, a journal called Think. And I did this essay called are you a vegan or are you an extremist? Which they really love the title of that. And 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 the reason why I titled that was to say, look, you either care about animals or you don't. If you think they're things and you think that they don't have any moral value, I got nothing to say to you. I mean, I, that's fine. That's I disagree with you, but I, I can't, there's really nothing I can say to you. I can't convince you to care about animals. That's not something that rational, rational thinking doesn't get you to care. It's complicated. But if you do care and you do think animals matter, then you need to be vegan. And if you're not vegan, you need to see why you are being extremely confused. And that's what I do in this essay. And I, I'll send you a copy of the essay. It, it's 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 short, but it's to the point. It, it's a sort of a of a of a short version of my most recent book, Why Veganism Matters: The Moral Value of, of, of Animals, which everybody should read and you should get as a Christmas present for everybody on your list. It's a really good book. And it's basically, that's the argument in it. It's that if animals matter, we cannot eat them, wear them, or use them. It's that simple. So what, but but we have many, many kinds of relationships with animals. And I'm completely with you. Like, I, I want everyone to not eat or use animals. I, I don't myself. But what is this future? And this isn't to negate. I'm, I'm on board with your ideas here. It's more a matter of asking, what is this future... And I think that this is a lack of imagination because this is not the world we've lived in. So it becomes a really difficult world to imagine. And it's perhaps picking up on some of the work of, of Will Kimlick and Sue Donaldson. So we've achieved, we've achieved abolition. I don't know how to even phrase this. We've achieved the abolition of animal use. We don't use animals anymore. It's not allowed. It's illegal. You can't do it. Everyone's on board. What does that world look like? How are we 
because I know in your writing you say that there's only a need for one right, and that's the right for animals to not be property. They they are not property. And I agree, I think property status is kind of the, the crux of a lot of the problems we have. But let's say animals are not property now. We're not allowed to use them. That's not allowed. What are our relationships? What are our relationships look like? Or is that not something we need to think about? That's just something that will figure itself out as long as we're not using. I think it would be, I think it would be the Garden of Eden because, I mean, the only way we're going to stop this, and I believe we can, we could, we could certainly reduce it substantially and certainly in some places easier than others. But I look at it as, you know, you know, I know Will and Sue have this issue that they think that, you know, it's going to be some sort of bleak, hideous world. You know, it's like some dystopian, horrible world without animals. And I view it as the only way we get there is if we reject violence. And man, that's my idea of a good time. I see the world that I live in as one that is sick with violence. Violence, overt physical violence. The violence of misogyny. I mean, you know, I, it still blows my mind. It's 2023 and we still have to sort of hear about, you know, oh, this is the first woman to do this and this is the first woman to do that. I mean, it's like 2023 and I still think misogyny is a huge, huge problem in, in, in life. And, you know, I mean, racism, misogyny, inequality. These are things that if we thought more, I mean, see, I, I think that a lot of the violence, the, you know, the, the, that is the background noise of our life, we accept because violence is a part of our life. We engage in it on a daily basis, killing and death and predation and this and that. It's a part of who we are. But it doesn't have to be that way. So when Will says, well, you know, oh, Gary's got this vision of life, you know, that is sort of dystopian and horrible and whatnot. I, I look at it and say, no, no, Will. No, that's absolutely false. That my world doesn't have the violence that this world has. And I'll, I'll trade my hamburgers and my ice cream and my, you know, wool pants or, and leather shoes and whatever. I'll trade that for a world that doesn't have this violence, for a world in which we are more protective of each other, where we're more considerate about each other, where we think that the individual, you know, that, that, that we do take rights seriously. I'm, I'm on board with that. And I think that, that, you know, I mean, look, I love my dogs. My dogs shouldn't exist. I love my dog. You will not meet anybody on the planet. I was telling you before we started recording, I've had 26 dogs since Anna and I have been together. 26. Uh, and, you know, once I retire, I'm hoping we'll have, you know, a lot more. But I, dogs shouldn't exist. I mean, dom domestication is horrible. It is absolutely horrible. We bring animals into existence who are intentionally submissive and intentionally subservient so that they, they can entertain us in various ways. I love, I mean, I've got... I got one here now. I got, I've got one here now who's sleeping. He was the guy who's sleeping here. I'll introduce you to him. Hold on a second. Here, come here. Meet Claudia. This is Duncan. Oh, hi, Duncan. Duncan is at least 18 years old. I mean, we've had him for a long time. And he was a cruelty case that we got. As a matter of fact, I was, I showed this to somebody the other day. This is what Duncan looked like when we got him. His he had been found in a in a pile of leaves 
and his mouth had been taped shut by some kids. Just just for listeners, he showed me a picture of, and his face is completely red and raw. Yeah, well, his face was cut in two. His face was his his face, his face was cut in two, and his tongue was out like a balloon. They thought he was dead, and then they they detected a heartbeat. They took him back to the shelter. They took the tape off, and they sewed his face back together again. He has no skin o- over here. If if I lifted, you'd see he has no skin. He has no teeth in the middle of his mouth. But he was a very you know he was a bad abuse case. But the thing of it is, is that you know, are you all right? There you go. All right. They're all vegans too, I should say. All vegans. All Everybody in this house is a vegan. You know, I, I think domestication is dreadful. I mean, I love my I love my dogs, but if there were two dogs left in the world and it was up to me whether or not they continue to breed so that we could have pets, the answer is not on your life. And I know Will disagrees with that, but, you know, I think wrong. Well, I think, I think my question is then, I mean, thinking about, thinking about that, I'm pretty certain you know, Will and Sue would not agree to the active breeding of any animals, right? This kind of perpetual breeding of of animals, you know, people who buy bred dogs, um, the breeding of dom- domesticated animals for meat, for, for they, I, I don't think that they would perpetuate that. But the question I think then becomes a matter of, so we can no longer use animals. We're all in agreement that we can no longer use animals. Let's say tomorrow the rule changes. We can no longer use animals. The question then becomes there are a whole host of domesticated animals that do exist, right? They, they're here, they're in the world. And there are lots of cities where there are dogs who are a product of domestication, but they're not pets. They navigate cities by themselves. They've got their own social lives, their own social networks. So should the law and politics not be responsive to they are, they exist. They're part of the world now because of, you know, centuries of domestication. But that doesn't mean that there's a future in which that they would probably look different. They would maybe start to breed and do their own things in their own way. And the geography and the social landscape would change dramatically. Yeah. Does that make sense? I think the question becomes No. It does make sense. Come on. It makes it makes these animals are not gonna just disappear. They're not gonna just be like, oh poof, all the animals are gone. But wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. But but neither neither are we gonna wake up tomorrow and say we're not gonna eat them and wear them and use them anymore. So I mean that's 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 unrealistic part of the hypothetical part one. So okay, so so go two hundred years, factory farms have been gone for a long time. Unless we act- actively prevent existing domesticated animals from breeding, which is a different kind of intervention. I mean, there are a whole bunch of practical questions involved, but you've got feral cows that are roaming in parts of, you know, North America, or you've got feral pigs across Europe. You've got dogs free roaming and street roaming dogs across many cities in Asia. These are domesticated animals. So we still need to think about them in future. Like there isn't going to be a future in any future where there are no dogs, no cows, no like I just can't imagine a world where they absolutely do not exist in any shape or form. Well, I mean, if we stop using, if we if we gradually, I mean, the, the, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen gradually. So what happens is we, you know, we are eating fewer, we are wearing fewer. This continues, this continues. The demand goes down, the production goes down, the demand goes down further, the production goes down further, and then if we're left in some situation where we've got some remaining domesticated animals, I mean, to the extent that feral pigs are running around Europe, they're not domesticated animals. I mean, they're able to take care of themselves. You leave them alone. To the extent that you still got domesticated animals, you should not allow them to reproduce. You know, I mean, 
this idea that, you know, all of a sudden everybody gets all excited about, well, you know, what about the right to reproduce? And the answer is, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. These are animals that we brought into existence so that we can exploit them. And now we figured out this is a really bad thing to do. So, so the idea that we've got some sort of moral obligation to allow it to continue is just doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't intervene on these domesticated, because I guess maybe, maybe we're getting caught up here in the different ways of using domestication. Because for me, even, even let's say the dogs of Chernobyl, right, who haven't interacted with humans for for a long time, many of them haven't. They're still a product of domestication, right? They're still from centuries. They're still a product of domestication, even if they themselves aren't necessarily domestic now, not in the traditional sense of the word, but you would still go in and spay and neuter them. They have no, they have no claim to being in the future. Canines, as we know, have no claim to being. I don't, I don't know enough about the dogs of Chernobyl to know how they live and what's going on and whether or not they're seriously handicapped by their I mean, this, domestic. Yeah, this was just an example, but I'm, I'm thinking. I mean, I, I just don't know. I don't know enough about them, but, but no, I mean, my view is you leave, you leave animal, you leave non-domesticated animals alone and you stop domesticated animals from reproducing. But that's only going to happen. I mean, you know, again, that's only going to happen once we're very different beings. And because people say, well, you know, what, what happens if we woke up tomorrow and we were all vegans? What would happen? And the answer is, I have no idea because it's hard for me to understand what we would be. We would be a different species of being if we woke up tomorrow and we were all vegans. And and my view is is that if we if we woke up tomorrow and we were all vegans because we all, we decided that nonviolence was a really bad idea I'm sorry it was a really good idea and that violence was a really bad idea and that we've been being violent we shouldn't do it we would be a different sort of being and then we would sort of figure out what do we do with all these animals who are here now you know and and but we've got thank God we've got these big brains we could figure it out the problem is is that we're, we have no incentive to figure it out now because we continue to use them they're things that we continue to use and so so I I I don't you know I don't the, the issue of dogs and cats and stuff like that that's only going to come after like that that's at the end of the the road in other words you're not going to get people to see that until they're until you've got them to be vegans and you've got you know it, it, you know if we had a vegan world or a substantially vegan world, then we could sort of move towards eradication of, dom of domestication altogether. But that's not going to happen, particularly of pets, because people, you know, I mean, people, people are saying, well, you know, wouldn't your life be impoverished if you didn't have the dogs? And I said, well, yeah. And I suppose that my life would have been impoverished if I was like living in the 18th century and you got rid of my slaves. I would figure, you know, getting rid of the house Negroes would really impoverish me because they're members of the family. You know, there's slaves who are members of the family. and you know, so I, I, I sort of think that, that, yeah, my life would be impoverished, but I can't, but I would be living in a different world. I mean, I'd be living in a world where there'd be much less alienation. I mean, part of the problem is we, we have dogs and cats because, you know, we're, we feel alienated, you know, they, they help, they help, they help ameliorate the, the alienation that we feel from other humans, you know, and, 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 and I think that if we had a different world in which we were all, embracing nonviolence, I think it would be, you know, it, things would be very different and we wouldn't have that need anymore, or at least it would be a different need. And so, you know, but I mean, I disagree absolutely with this idea. I mean, Will's got, Will paints this sort of you know, abolitionism as some, some bleak picture. No, abolitionism is, is in my judgment, a, uto a utopian situation, uh, a true, you know, a true utopian situation of not uh, where we really embrace nonviolence because the bottom line is, 
we all say that nonviolence is a value that, I mean, you know, most of us say that nonviolence is a value that we have and that we, you know, oh, Gandhi this and Martin Luther King that, and blah, 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 blah. The reality is violence is a part of our lives. And it's a, it's a personal part of our lives that we engage in, that most of us engage in multiple times a day. And, and you know, you can't talk about nonviolence when you're shoveling the products of violence into your mouth, you know, or putting them on your body. You just can't do that. And it just doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, I mean, I, I've developed starting, you know, starting with, with Tom and Anna and to some degree Nancy Reagan back in the, the late 80s, developing what became the abolitionist approach. Didn't call it that back then. It was just sort of putting ideas together. But now it's called the abolitionist approach, you know, which basically has six principles that, you know, that that every sentient being has one right, one moral right, the right not to be regarded as property. And that the second principle is that if animals have that right, then we should not be trying to make exploitation more humane. We ought to be advocating the abolition of exploitation. And the third principle is that veganism is a moral imperative and a moral baseline. It's the least we can do. We have an obligation to do it. The fourth principle, which is that sentience is the only requirement, the only cognitive requirement necessary to be a full member of the moral community. You don't need any level of intelligence or anything like that. And the fifth principle is that all the forms of discrimination are wrong. And the sixth principle, violence is wrong. And that's basically what has morphed into the abolitionist approach. You know, I mean, there are a lot of people who buy it. A lot of people think it makes sense. They're not part of groups. You know, they're doing their own work. I mean, it's, it's, you know, but that's, that's what I think. And that's what I think makes sense. And I think that the whole idea of animal welfare, I mean, I am amazed that anybody in 2023 looks at animal welfare and says, well, there's a role for that. Really? What has it done? Can somebody tell me what it's done? Can, can, can somebody tell me what it's done and how it's made things better and how it's reduced, you know, anything? The answer is no. You know, these single issue campaigns, they're great money makers. You can get people together and, you know, all, you know, everybody can sort of complain about, you know, the Koreans eating dogs or the Chinese people eating dogs while they're busy, you know, eating chickens. You know, they can point their fingers at, at Asian people and say they're bad people, you know, and or women wearing fur coats or, you know, whatever, or the French eating, you know, goose liver or whatever the hell, you know, I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous. I mean, single issue campaigns are a great, they're a great opportunity for expressions of xenophobia, ethnocentrism, various forms of discrimination, but they're money makers, you know, because you can, I mean, again, you can, you can have, you can, you can make these economic groups where like you get a bunch of people who are animal exploiters together, but you all agree that somebody else is a worse exploiter. So everybody points their finger at, you know, the Chinese people eating dogs. I definitely, I mean, I definitely hear you. I can see how it can become a a great distraction from kind of really contending with what it means to be in relationship with other animals and how that could be different. And I mean, dr- drastically different. Like you've, you've shared a lot about your, I think, vegan experience here today. And I've, I've said many times on the podcast, you know, I went vegan because I didn't want to participate. Similar to you, I just didn't want to participate in something that was that violent. Like I had a moment when I realized and, you know, that changed. But it took a few months thereafter for me to actually realize. And I, I think really grapple with the fact that they were subjects of a life, which you mentioned earlier, that they, that they, you know, a fish in a tank who's only experienced their whole life in a tank, that that's their life. And to really take seriously that 
And I think that, like you've said, there is a real paradigm shift to taking that seriously. And when you really take it morally seriously, I think it raises several important political questions. Gary, thank you for, for being so generous with your time. I'm going to give you an opportunity now to, to read the quote that you've got ready, and then, and then we'll, we'll start wrapping up. Well, I didn't know about this quote until you mentioned it, because I didn't <laughs> read the instructions that you sent me. This is just, I mean, you know, I could probably come up with something better, but this was actually in, in response to the idea that an abolitionist world would be bleak. And I say an abolitionist world, which would be far less alienating than the world in which we presently live, would be anything but bleak. And although I've not discussed other reasons that militate in favor of veganism, a vegan world or a largely vegan world may be the only way we avoid a climate catastrophe. And a vegan world would make possible the eradication of human hunger, as well as the elimination of the specter of more pandemics and other zoonotic diseases. And I would say that a, ve that a vegan world I would add to that quote, a vegan world would be a much less violent world. And if you value nonviolence, I don't see what the choice is. What I really love about that, though, is I think so often people have ideas in their minds of vegans being violent or, or radical. And I think that really when you start to look at veganism as a practice, it's an embracing of of not hurting, really, of, of really not hurting and taking seriously your role in in society and in yeah, and I, I think that that's really, really well said. Well, you know, the, the the thing is that the thing is that the animal movement, although it's it's, I, I would suspect most of the people who identify with it are female, it's led by men, and patriarchy is insidious in so many ways, and the top, you know, the, the movement has never really rejected violence as far as I'm concerned. It's been an issue I've been fighting with for 40 years now. And, you know, I've been trying to talk to animal people who, you know, going and screaming at people is just really sort of, I mean, it's a bad idea and all sorts for all sorts of reasons. You know, when people are sitting in a restaurant, going in a restaurant and sort of screaming at them, you know, is, is just a really bad idea. Or, you know, I mean, you're never going to educate. That's, that's for dramatic, that's for fundraising purposes. And the level of hostility, you, you know, like you can't even discuss these issues. I, I stopped going to animal conferences ages ago, actually in the 90s, because it was getting to the point where you couldn't even discuss these issues. People would get all upset. They'd yell and scream and whatnot. And so, you know, nonviolence is, for me, the, the only thing that matters. It is the most important moral principle in the universe is nonviolence. I, I take that real super seriously. And I'll talk to anybody about this. I spend enormous amounts of time talking to people about it. And I'll continue to do it till the day I die. But, you know, you're never going to, you're never going to get people to buy this. You're never going to get people to buy nonviolence by being violent. Never, 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 never. And, and I think that nonviolence is an extremely important value that we've got to promote it. And that I see this, I really do see the animal movement and the vegan movement as the peace movement only it includes animals. It's the it's the most expansive thing, you know. And 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 you can never, you know. One of the things I I, I living in the world, you're always going to have adverse impacts on others. So like I always try when I'm walking, you know, I don't walk in grass if I can avoid it because I don't like to step. I I have no idea whether insects are sentient, but 
<laughs> what the hell? I, you know, if I can avoid killing them, I will avoid it. So I try not to walk in grass. And I, when I'm walking, when I'm taking the dogs for a walk, I'm always sort of looking down to make sure that if, if there's any sort of thing walking in the road, I, I sort of walk around. And I always drive very carefully so that, you know, that I don't, I don't hit any animals and whatnot. But the reality is, you know, the vegetables that I eat, they're, you know, I'm, I'm starting to move into veganic gardening now, which has, which, which harms, you know, you know, you're not using, you're not having a, as great an impact as conventional agriculture, even organic agriculture has on other animals. But, you know, there's always going to be harm. So even if you eat just vegetables, you know, people always say to me, well, you know, What's the difference between being a vegan and not being a vegan? Because you you eat it, you eat vegetables, and the animals have been killed. And I said, yeah, I, I said, but but let's keep in keep in mind that 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 the number of if if we were all vegans, we would reduce the the land mass that was used for agriculture purposes by seventy. I've never understood this argument because if we're both eating a hamburger and your and all other ingredients are equal, your hamburger has my hamburger has a beef patty on it, and your hamburger doesn't, but all the other ingredients are equal. I've I've Eaten substantially less and hurt substantially fewer. Like I don't understand where that you just because you eat animals doesn't mean that you're also not eating plants. <laughs> like, <it's, laughs> like, right, exactly. I mean, I mean, it's ridiculous. But you know, you know how many times a week I have to deal with that argument. I mean, I mean, the number of times I have to deal with that argument. It's just like, you know, people always say, well, you know, so you're a vegan, you know, I eat meat. What difference does it make? You know, and you say, well, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge difference. But, but I, I do think, I mean, I see the reaction that vegans get and it makes me convinced that this is the right way to go because I think people can't really deal with that. And I mean, most, who's going to disagree with animal welfare? Oh yeah, I agree. We should be, we should be humane. Have you ever met anybody in your life who said, no, Claudia, I think we should be less humane. You know, nobody says that, you know, I mean, no, nobody, nobody says anything. Gary, uh, it's been, uh, sorry to cut you off there, but it's, it's, it's been really great to talk to you and actually to speak frankly about veganism as well and, and about your abolitionist ideas and approach. What are you currently working on? And if people want to talk to you more about these ideas or learn more about what you're working on, where, where can they find out those details? Well, they can go to, I have two sites, theabolitionistapproach.com, abolitionistapproach.com, and then another site called howdoigovegan.com, which is basically a how-to. How, how do I go vegan? You know, and, and with recipes and all sorts of stuff. And what I'm working on now, I'm working on, I'm working on an article right now that is going to be going into philosophy journal about how animal it's basically, you know, why animal welfare it that we are frustrated that we haven't gotten further should come as no surprise because we're going about it the wrong way sort of thing. And it's, you know, that, but you know, I would recommend my, my most recent book, why veganism matters, the moral value of animals, because what I do in that book is I, I try to sort of articulate a theory of personhood based on sentience. And I, I want to leave you with one thing because it's it's relevant. And that is, you know, in the 1960s, there was a woman. Her name was Bridget Brophy. She was a novelist. She lived in London. She was sort of part of what London was in the 1960s. And, you know, she was, uh, you know, she was a free spirit. And and she wrote an essay in 1965, which I didn't read until much, much later in the Sunday Times called The Rights of Animals. And then she wrote an essay in 1971 in a book called Animals, Men and Morals that was put together by two grad graduate students at Oxford at the time. 
And I only came to, you know, I mean, nobody ever talked about Bridget Brophy. You know, Tom never talked about her. Peter never talked about her. And I read her essay. And her essay in about three pages, I wish I had read it years ago because it could have saved me decades of work. I mean, she basically she basically said, the idea that you can separate an interest in living from an from being sentient, that you can say sentient beings don't have an interest in living is nonsense. And I mean, she was at Oxford at the time, although I think they threw her out because she was bisexual and she, you know, I mean, she, she was an interesting person and, and, and she had, you know, I think she, they threw her out as I, as I, I believe they threw her out, but you know, this idea that we've gotten that animals are mentally, they're cognitively different. Yeah. They're cognitively different from us. Of course they are. They don't use language, but this idea that we've come up with that you can say sentience, you have an interest in not suffering, but you don't have an interest in continuing to live. That is the sort of idea that gives bullshit a bad name. It really does. It's just wrong. And I think once we see that, I think it it sort of makes the light go on. And I'm I'm really happy that this coming spring at the Oxford Literary Festival in Oxford, England, I am going to be doing something about Bridget Brophy. And I'm going to be talking about how this woman had the most brilliant idea of anybody (laughs) back in the 1960s. But she got eclipsed by Peter Singer and she got eclipsed by Tom. She got eclipsed by 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 the boys and that and that she had this brilliant vision and we need to take it seriously. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to that so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for, for being on the show. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you. Virginia, welcome back to the Animal Highlight. So who are we going to be focusing on today? Well, in this Animal Highlight, I'm highlighting the honeybee. Because insects like bees are usually literally and figuratively beneath our gaze. We often don't notice or appreciate the things they do, including the things they do for us. Bees do a great deal for humans, and I think they're one of the few insects that we do perhaps notice and appreciate, at least to some extent. But of course, as Gary has just been explaining, from an abolitionist standpoint, we shouldn't be exploiting what bees or other animals do at all. And honeybees are remarkable animals, particularly because of their social organisation. I should say that More than 20,000 species of bees have been identified, and there's a huge amount of diversity among the species. Not all of them are social. Some of them, like the mining bee and the cuckoo bee, are solitary. But the honeybee is social and lives in colonies that can have tens of thousands of bees living together. And for social insects like the honeybee, the colony is a superorganism whose survival is important rather than the survival of individual bees. And to achieve this, honeybees cooperate and collaborate in highly evolved and complex ways, particularly through the division of labour, which is determined through their caste system of female queens, male drones and female workers. The main role of queens and drones is to reproduce to ensure the survival of their own colony in the case of the queen and other colonies in the case of the drones. The workers do all the work of maintaining the colony, cleaning, ventilating and guarding the nest, feeding and caring for larvae, building wax comb cells, looking after the queen, 
foraging for and storing food, and even feeding the drones. And as you can imagine, communication is incredibly important to animals who live with so many others. And bees are famous for the way they communicate. They've developed a sophisticated system of dancing to share information about the location and quality of food with other members of the colony, which includes information based on calculations made in relation to the position of the sun. That's really cool. I think I've seen some of the videos of this dancing and it looks a bit like a, like a wiggle and a jive. Is that right? Yeah, it gets, it gets called the waggle dance sometimes, but actually I was reading for this. It depends where the food is. If, if the food's in one place, they do the waggle dance. And if the food's in another place, they do the circle dance. But I can't remember which way around it is. You have to be a bee to understand this kind of stuff. <laughs> I love the idea that, I mean, I guess dancing is a form of communication, any which way you put it. But, but yeah, the idea of bees dancing, you watch those videos and it's, it's quite remarkable to just kind of see how they move and they know exactly what's, what's happening. So, so really cool. I'm delighted we're looking at bees today. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose you could say dancing is even a form of human communication, but it's much more crude than the sophisticated dance of the bee. Honeybees do two things that are particularly interesting to humans. And they pollinate plants and they make honey. Both of these things are natural honeybee behaviours, and wild honeybees pollinate plants and make honey independently of humans. But over thousands of years, people have learned to manage honeybee behaviour to exploit it more effectively for their own purposes. This started with an interest in keeping bees for their honey and also their wax. And a paper by Guy Bloch and colleagues suggests that there's evidence of beekeeping as early as the 10th century before the Common Era. Today, though, honeybees are perhaps even more important to people for their pollination of crops. Bees and other pollinators pollinate wild and domestic plants. And 35% of our crops depend on bees and other pollinators, making bees essential to crop production and human food security. In financial terms, it's estimated that bees contribute 22 billion euro a year to Europe's agricultural industry and $14 billion a year in the US. But although this is very important to people, it's a very utilitarian teleological way of thinking about bees. And this is something which the abolitionist standpoint which Gary was just describing, would argue against. And Gary was also talking about veganism in relation to abolitionist views. And he described veganism as the avoidance of eating, wearing or using any animal product, which of course includes honey and wax. And often when people who aren't vegans think about dietary veganism, they remember meat, dairy products and eggs, but they might forget about honey People knew some of the incredible figures associated with honey production. They might take bees and their exploitation by people more seriously. So over her entire life, which is admittedly short, only a few weeks, a worker bee will make only one twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. And it takes two million visits to flowers to make 500 grams of honey, which is roughly the size of jars of honey that are sold in supermarkets. So in terms of exploitation, think of the sheer scale of lives and work and effort that has gone into that small jar of honey, which we take for granted. Yeah, thank you so much for mentioning that. 
honey is something that trips people up quite quite readily when you when you when they're approached with veganism. I get asked it quite often, but you don't eat you don't eat honey. Like it's a it's a plant. And it really does confuse folks, but it's because it is such it's it's such an exploitative kind of product. And part of the reason being is it's not just that it requires a whole bunch of labor and effort for bees to produce the honey, right? Like they expend enormous amounts of energy to create this which and their reserves to kind of sustain them over winter months and also for their young to eat but it's because in industrial bee operations what they also do is they replace this really rich nutrient rich honey with like a sugary syrup right so the bees are getting fed but they're getting fed with something that's much more deficient in terms of nutrition and i think if i'm not mistaken there are, and it's not it's not kind of proven unequivocally, but there's been a lot of like hive, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's hive collapse. A lot of hive collapses are happening where just entire hives die or they disappear. And this is becoming a huge concern because like you said, there we rely quite heavily on bees. And, and it's not just us who rely on bees, right? A lot of ecosystems are reliant on pollinators. And you know, colony collapse is really, really significant and important. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for for ages. And it's not just that they're fed deficient. You know, you see, I don't know if you watched when preparing for this, some of the videos of how the bee colonies are moved around in order to facilitate this pollination process. So you'll go to kind of places where there's massive monocrops, like where they farm almonds in California, for example, and you'll see trucks and truckloads of beehives you so industrial beehives being driven around and they park they open up so that the bees will go and pollinate and then they they bring them back in and oftentimes you know queen bees are are killed anyway there's many many reasons why it's not why vegans don't eat honey and uh, clearly clearly i'm just going on a bit of a spewing a spewing thing here but thank you for for flagging that because uh, it is something i think that's part of generally an ethical vegan standpoint so i appreciate it Thank you so much to Gary for being an incredible guest. Thank you to Christian Mentz for editing this episode, to Virginia Thomas for doing the animal highlight. Thank you to Animals and Philosophy, Politics and Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this podcast, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the good music. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hüttenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!